Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Hello again, Electric Liberty Landers, Electric Liberty Land lovers. Hello all, I am Brian McWilliams. This is Electric Liberty Land 16. That means you can find it at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL16. That's got all the show notes, etc., etc. I'm going to be speaking with Heather Nixon from the Johnny Rocket Launchpad just in a little bit, guys. But first, you know, get into a few topics here. First things first, I want to talk about Alex Jones. I just got off a call with our Liberty Pride, our very special Liberty Pride members. Uh, we have a certain threshold there where our Liberty Priders can uh, can contribute to the podcast. And we do a special call with them. And we had an interesting conversation about one Alex Jones. If you have not heard, Alex Jones is getting a lot of flack from people in and outside of the Libertarian Party, in and outside of the alt-righters that listen to him, about his lawyer's statement in court, because Alex Jones is going through divorce right now where his lawyer said that he was playing a quote-unquote character and that, you know, this was basically performance art. Now, the reason for that is that his wife is going against him in court and using his uh, public persona as a reason to get sole custody and, and to basically just attack him over. It's a, a little bit sad to see, but I guess you can understand why she would do that. He said some crazy things time and time again uh, about vampires and uh, lizard people and everything else. Now, half of that, of course, is said in jest, and I do believe is part of his public persona, and I do agree that he is playing a character, but this is not an unforeseen thing that was going to happen. Anytime a lawyer says he's playing a character about somebody that holds himself forth as this blustering personality that is everything, believes everything he says, and is completely real, reporting the facts as they come into him, this is the type of thing that's just going to blow up. It's just natural. Now, Do I believe that Alex Jones is a fraud? Well, we were talking about it, as I said, on this call with two of our uh, our good friends, and uh, I'm not going to say their names. I don't want to reveal that. Don't know if they want that out to everybody. But I will say that we had come to a consensus that essentially, essentially, pardon me, what Alex Jones is doing is the exact same as what everybody else is doing in the mainstream media right now. Look at Rachel Maddow. Now, Rachel Maddow is playing a character for her audience because, honestly, I don't think she can be as stupid as she comes across. I mean, Rachel Maddow is one of the absolute worst voices for progressivism. She's completely biased. She seems to ignore facts at at her convenience. So, really, she is playing a character. She's clearly a smart woman. She worked her way up through the process of, of TV and radio and whatever else she did, journalism. So, clearly, she can put facts together. She knows how to present them in a way that's going to sway her audience. So she is playing a character. And hell, if she gets off TV, she's probably a very reasonable woman with valid opinions. <laughs> it just so happens that she's not when she's on the Rachel Maddow show. I mean, look at people like, yeah, okay, let's say you know, Stephen Colbert was thrown out as one example. Although he's clearly playing a character. But I mean, there's, there's any number of people out there that are constantly playing characters in the media. Uh, Glenn Beck, for, exist- for example. Rush Limbaugh, for example. These people are all playing to an audience. Everybody selectively chooses what they're going to say that's going to cater to their audience. So to say Alex Jones is somehow now not trustworthy, that he should not be listened to. Look, if you are a guy that listened to Alex Jones before, keep listening to Alex Jones. He's got an operation behind him. He's got people working for him that are pulling up facts. And as, one again, one of the people on our call pointed out, and he used an interesting, uh, interesting example, which I'll steal. He said that Alex Jones is right 60% of the time and wrong 50% of the time. And he knows that math is correct because he says, you know, that extra 10% is the bluster that comes along with Alex Jones. And you know what you're getting. Because when Alex is going out there and he's screaming and his veins are popping out of his head and he's shrieking into the microphone, it is Alex Jones' voice! You know that he's emphasizing certain things that are probably false. It's like, you know, thou doth protest too much, good sir, type of thing. The louder somebody yells, typically the less truth there is to that statement. And that goes for Alex Jones, just like it goes for everybody else in the media. 
Because don't be surprised, people. The mainstream media selectively chooses their facts. Now, Alex Jones, if there's one sin he probably has, is that he doesn't pick and choose his facts quite so carefully. He's more willing to open up the floodgates, let his mind wander and say, well, here's what I heard. This, 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 and this, and this. Here's what could happen. That, 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 and that. And if some of those little seeds he's thrown out grow into trees, great. Most of them don't. But still, food for thought. So there you go. There's my opening rant on Alex Jones to start off this electric liberty land. I do want to remind you at this point, guys, to please... Listen to Mark Claire on Mondays here with his in-depth interviews. Listen to John Odie Odermatt on Felony Fridays every Friday. He's got some incredibly interesting interviews with people who have been wronged by the justice system, which we all know is a sham. And, of course, follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Support the show. Go to lionsofliberty.com forward slash support. And you can also buy a t-shirt, lionsofliberty.store, created by the great Dan Smots. All right, two more things I want to talk about before I get into the meat with Heather. That, hmm, I could have phrased that better. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry about that, Heather. <laughs> All right, let's uh, rephrase that. Before I get into uh, the main part of the show with Heather Nixon of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad, uh, I want to talk real quick about the Atlanta Braves and their new stadium. Because... Throughout, I'd say, the history of sports, uh, at least in the past 35, 40 years, the uh, sporting sporting events, they take place in these stadiums, and the majority of the money is actually made through concessions, through uh, the boxes, through the parking, and all these other things they have in these super mega stadiums. It's not even so much from the ticket sales anymore. Those are balanced out by the team wages, etc. But, my God, you you build yourself a nice big stadium, and you got it going on. Now, the Atlanta Braves Stadium has only been around for, I think, 25, maybe not even 25 years. I mean, it's it's fairly young as far as stadiums go. And right now, their new stadium is in the northern suburbs of Cobb County, Georgia, uh, which is closer to Marietta than to downtown Atlanta. So enjoy that commute, guys. And essentially, the deal for the new stadium was arranged using uh, $400 million of taxpayer money. Only $200 million of team money. And mind you, the existing stadium would have only cost $200 million to renovate and update. So to put in all the bells and whistles that the team wanted to have done to fix all of any, uh, any issues that were, that were there, I don't know, leaky pipes and, uh, rats in the ceiling. And I, and I don't know what else. <laughs> um, John Smoltz's, uh, ghost, you know, haunting the hallways, whatever's going on there. But to fix that's $200 million. But no, the team said, no, we want a brand new stadium. And the city went behind the public's eye and made a backroom deal with the Braves to do it. John Shireholtz, who is the president, acknowledged as much in an interview when he was pressed on the question. He said, no, we had to do this out of the public eye because if the public found out about it, that they were being shanghaied for $400 million for a stadium that is promised to raise the economic uh, revenue in the surroundings to bring areas out of poverty, they would have been in an uproar. Now, why would they have been in an uproar? Let me tell you. And I know this from not not only working with somebody that developed minor league baseball teams in stadiums uh, named Peter Guber, who's a big time producer, but also now is a part owner of the LA Dodgers owns many minor league teams throughout the country. But Despite the economic arguments that would say, okay, you build a stadium, it raises the revenue of everything around it because, okay, you're going to get uh, businesses popping up. You're going to have restaurants popping up. You're going to have home homeowners popping up there, and you're going to build joint-use facilities with apartments on top and uh, residential or sorry, residential on top and retail on the bottom. All right, so some of that has it does happen, acknowledging that. But for the most part, the neighborhood around that area still stays terrible. If you go to Dodger Stadium right now, it's like a demilitarized zone around the stadium. I mean, it's a godforsaken land where no one should walk. We need RoboCops in there. It's that bad. I mean, it's really bad. And in the area around Atlanta Stadium, the, the previous stadium that had been there for 25 years and was built there with the same prediction that it would raise everybody up that was sitting in that, uh, that area around the stadium, 
What's happened? Nothing. And part of the complaint the team had, part of the reasoning for moving to a new stadium that the team had was that the stadium was in such a horrible area. (laughs) So how do you equate those two things? How can you, out of one side of your mouth, say that having a stadium promotes economic revenue and and, an economic uh, upturn for the surrounding area around that stadium and helps everybody in these areas because they always try to build them in areas that are that are kind of downtrodden. Number one, because the land's cheap, by the way. But they always argue, oh, it's going to help everybody out. How do you say it helps everybody out at the same time? Your reason for moving the stadium is because it's in such a crap hole of an area that you can't take it anymore. It's absolutely absurd. But such is life. So the city made a deal with the team. The new stadium was built. They did have a public hearing because they had to. They didn't tell anybody, but there were people that knew. There were there were groups that said, they, okay, they found out. They wanted to go protest this going on. So they did. They went to the town hall they held somewhere in Atlanta. And they were told they were not allowed to speak. At the uh, the town hall or the city council meeting, they were denied their right to speak on anything regarding the stadium issue, which was then voted on and passed unanimously. So there you go. That's your government at work. Now, you tell me, what incentive did the city have to do this? Other than, I guess, they didn't want the Atlanta Braves to leave. A team which, even when they were winning titles, or actually, they didn't win anything. They got to a lot of uh, of, of uh, division series, I should say. But they never won anything. But even then, they didn't have big crowds supporting them. So how much money are these guys getting kicked under the table? These local governments. Because you know it ain't small potatoes if they're willing to go and build a brand new stadium and ditch this old one, despite the fact that the public the public would have been so angry about it that they had to do it out of sight. So just absolutely shameful. Um, all right, one more thing. Let's talk a little bit about North Korea. A lot has happened in the past week since we talked about that. Uh, I want to talk about specifically, too, some comments that Ron Paul said about North Korea. So let me just read a... Uh, let me just sum up his arguments. I don't want to give you a long-winded quote here. Essentially, Ron Paul is looking at what's happening in North Korea and saying that, you know what? No matter what goes down in that area, North Korea is going to stay the same way it is right now. And Ron Paul's reasoning for that is that he says that both China and the U.S. need to have a boogeyman in that region. And what he means by that is that it benefits China and it benefits the United States to have something there to keep us in control of the region. Because if we just said, okay, you know what, hands off, let South Korea handle it, we're backing out of here, you know, it's all going to work itself out, Have hope, open up the borders, help them out, free trade, they're going to modernize, it'll happen naturally on its own. To allow that to happen means that we would have no other reason to stay in there and have that foothold. Which, in truth, when you think about it, for America— I'm not saying I advocate this or I think we should be there. But if you're on the military industrial side of things, you're saying, well, we got to have the, that base there. That puts us right next to China. We've got, we're, yeah, we're, we're boom, we're right there. We got 30,000 troops. We're putting in the THAAD missile system there in South Korea. We've got ample amount of firepower here to deter China as they look to, uh, to become more ambitious. And same thing, you know, Russia's right there as well. So you've got a, Really strong reason to stay there. And if North Korea goes away, you've got no other reason to have your troops there. So why would we ever do anything to upset that balance? And I think that's a really, really interesting point. I think Ron Paul is dead on here. Now, that being said, I'm still fascinated about what's going on with uh, Trump and China and how he's played this whole thing out. Now, I don't like the fact that he's sailing an armada over to, to North Korean waters and that's being trailed by Chinese ships and uh, and Russian ships. But at the same time, it could be, <laughs> I guess it could be worse. Uh, I, I don't like Mike Pence talking about how they're done with this failed strategy of patience because I don't, I don't see how being patient with somebody uh, is somehow a bad idea when they've got a nuclear weapon. You know, that's That's just me. That's just my take on it. Uh, I don't like to poke a bear when the bear's got a nuclear weapon. And at the same time, I guess, you know, we've been patient with them. And, and over time, that's that has been counterproductive in regards to the nuclear program. I'll acknowledge that. If you, if you believe that we should be interfering with their nuclear program. 
which again, I don't. I think they have every right to have a nuclear weapon. But Trump's pressure on China has been proven, uh, so far at least, from their actions to be working. They're turning away ships from North Korea. They're, they're pushing these coal boats back. They're taking U.S. coal. They're now ramping up the rhetoric against North Korea. And North Korea, really, without China's aid, is nothing. Now, that can be good and bad. The bad side is that if China does not have a resolution with North Korea and work out some way to say, OK, look, get rid of your nukes. We're going to help you even more than we have been. Plus, the U.S. will help you normalize relations. Let's say they don't they say we don't need this boogeyman anymore then great. But on the downside of that, if China accelerates things, if Trump pressures China and China attacks North Korea, and then that, let's say they don't even use nukes, let's say they, they get into a traditional ground war, then that's going to lead to far more deaths with South Korea and North Korea. It's going to drag the U.S. into a prolonged war there. Who knows what's going to happen with China? I mean, if, what side China is going to be on? I don't freaking know. But then we've got a prolonged war. And without a doubt, in a prolonged ground war, traditional war, North Korea will lose. And then that's when the danger of nukes, I think, actually comes back around again. Because if you've got Kim Jong sitting there and he's got these nuclear weapons, he's got nowhere else to lean or to turn. I mean, he's basically like Hitler in the bunker. He's going to turn the gun on himself, but that gun's going to be a nuclear weapon of desperation. And I, I guess not even turn it on himself. He's going to turn it on anybody. Because at that point... We've seen how the madman he is. I mean, the guy blows up generals with anti-aircraft guns. So that's when he's going to say, okay, you know what? Screw it. I have nothing else to lose. I'm going to fire this nuke off. And yeah, what's the worst that can happen? I'm still going to be dead. So that's, I think, the actual doomsday scenario would be getting in a traditional ground where in, wherein we're drawn in. And that's where he could kill 30 million Korean and U.S. troops by setting off those nukes right there. Until that happens, he has no reason to do it because those nukes are the buffer that keeps him in power. So the worst thing the U.S. could do would be to try to try to influence or get into some sort of altercation where we're drawn into a prolonged war with North Korea once again. All right, that's my take on that. All right, everybody, as promised, I do have the shining beauty of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad here with us today. You know, our great friends, our Libertarian podcast up there in Washington. She is also one of the, uh, I'd say, the lead gatherer of the Ladies of Liberty Alliance in the Tacoma, Seattle, Washington area. That is Heather Nixon. Heather, welcome to Electric Liberty Land. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me. Well, you know, I mean, after you uh, you laid the smack on me on your podcast, I had no alternative, <laughs> did I? <laughs> no, I, I did the guilt trip because I'm a woman. It's what I do. And I will I will link to that specific uh, podcast, by the way. And of course, you guys also are on uh, internet radio up there in in the Seattle area. Remind me, what is what's the channel you guys run? Well, we are on like ten different internet radio stations. Um, NWCZ. I'm I'm gonna miss a few, so I probably shouldn't mention any. But there's like ten different internet um, radio stations we're on, and then of course we're on YouTube and on Podbean, and you can find us at JohnnyRocketLaunchpad.com and all the links and all that stuff. There you go. See, and you should seek them out. They are part of our our League of Liberty that we like to tout here. So yeah, it's been awesome. Uh, I apologize I've not had you on earlier, Heather. So yeah, thank you for joining me. Um. So top off, uh, on last Monday's show, which is episode 290 of the Lions of Liberty podcast, Mark Clare had on Judd Weiss, who was, of course, John McAfee's vice president. And he did a whole big thing where, you know, Judd basically laid out the issues he had with the Gary Johnson campaign. And I am very happy to have Heather here because Heather was also, uh, she, you know, obviously you guys were picking your candidates as the election was running, you know, running its course. And I know you guys, both you and Johnny and uh, had gone and were delegates, but you had actually gotten the chance to join the Gary Johnson campaign. And so it was interesting to me hearing Judd's assessment where just in case people didn't hear that episode, and I highly encourage you to, he had laid out some issues wherein the Gary Johnson campaign was trying to pay people off to leave other campaigns. They were trying to snipe people from other campaigns and bring them in. He had accused him of flying people in for you know delegates and all sort of these kind of shady, underhanded practices. And I wanted to talk to Heather and get her take on not only 
Judd's assessment, but also see what your own personal experience with the campaign was, because I know you came out of that not necessarily feeling um, like it was the best experience of your life. That is correct. And, you know, before the, the uh, up until the convention, my experience was just interviewing candidates and, of course, uh, following the drama on Facebook. Um, we had uh, interviewed um, most of the president and vice presidential candidates and and my interest was stick- strictly as going down as a delegate. It wasn't until, uh, I guess, September did I that I became involved in the campaign. And I first volunteered to help with events here in Washington State and ultimately was hired as the Washington State Volunteer Director uh, paid staff for Gary Johnson. Mm-hmm. Was that something that just happened organic? Like, did you see like an ad for it or they just approached you and they said, you know, you're not going to have the ballpark here. Why don't you come and work for us type of thing? It happened um, at first because of the the volunteer momentum. Um, at the time, I was involved in the Libertarian Party of Washington State. I am no longer a member of the state or the national party. But we were doing trying to get volunteers together, uh, find out about getting the signatures for Gary to get on the ballot and that sort of thing. So it, it uh it happened through first volunteering and then the campaign, the national campaign decided to actually hire uh, paid staff members for Washington state. Uh, there was an incredible turnover with the volunteers. So they decided if maybe if they paid people, they'd stick around. Right. Yeah. So what, so when you got into the campaign, um, what, tell me a little bit about what, what went down, you know, and, and I don't know, I know, I don't know, want to say, you know, give it all away. I don't want to get you in trouble, but tell me as much as you can about what you experienced while you were working for that campaign. And if there is any credence to what Judd was saying, where, you know, what was your impression of the people? What was your impression of the leadership in that campaign? You know, did it seem like it was on the up and up or did you, were you put in positions where you had to make maybe uncomfortable choices or uncomfortable decisions um, <laughs> morally? <laughs> well, I was very far removed from the inner workings of the national campaign mm-hmm. the and i think most people that were following along after the convention the day after the the voting there was like the big breakfast at Denny's uh, down in Florida where they were already organizing everybody was so already already had their they already knew they were going to be working together and i i came along months after that mm. and those of us, and I will say, I did sign a non-disclosure agreement when I was hired. Um, so sometimes I joke about that. Uh, what are they going to do if I say anything? You know, that's, that's actually a valid question because at this point, the campaign's defunct anyway. There's, maybe there's one angry man who's going to give you a call and start talking. Right? About. Yeah. <laughs> I like I, I always joke. I have a gargoyle collection and a 2010 Kia. Come get it. Um, <laughs> but the the me personally. I won't speak for the others on the state level. Uh, we were in on the daily national conference calls. Uh, it was quite interesting to hear what was going on. Now, as far as the the things that Judd talked about regarding maybe backstabbing or underhanded, I was not involved in that in the least bit. Mm-hmm. He also he very is very critical of Leisha Dern. I know what she has told me personally. Um, I also talked to her campaign manager. Um, and, and, and I think that is just a matter of opinion and I'm not, I, I think, let me just, let me just give you a little bit of background of that to our listeners. Yeah. So, uh, in that, in that same context of the interview that Judd gave, he had said that Alicia Dern had, she'd been campaigning hard for the VP position. And then I guess he was accusing her of kind of being pressured from behind the scenes and flip-flopping and then endorsing, uh, I guess, Gary and Bill Weld and her campaign manager, Judge had, uh, excuse me, Judd had said was in tears over it and had no idea it was kind of coming. So that's, that's what Heather's addressing right here. Correct. And, and he also made the allegation that she was put in place maybe to even detour from from his candidacy, um, you know, where she was focusing in, on the artistic and maybe trying to steal some of his thunder. I personally and, and we interviewed her on the launch pad. She was very critical of um, some of the things in the in the Johnson campaign. She said that she, you know, had worked with them, but she was not in that boat and she was very independent. So 
you know, I, I can't dispel that and what Judd's experiences are, you know, I can't speak to that either, but, uh, I mean, in, at the convention, yes, uh, Elizabeth was in tears and I, I spoke to her right after that. And, you know, and this was in public, so I don't think I'm betraying a confidence, but she was literally saying, what did she do? Mm. What did she do? So she was unaware that Alicia was even going to do that, yeah. uh, go up and, and throw it to Bill. And she did try and call Bill out and make him make a promise, which he didn't. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. To, what, what was it? Yeah, to be loyal to the Libertarian Party or something like that? And he <laughs> refused to even do that much? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. It, like I said, it, it was very interesting. And I did get the feeling that she felt betrayed. She was crying up on stage what was going on before and what she was told. Like I said, I can only go by what she said. Yeah. Um, the, and as far as into the campaign, by the time I got, like I said, it wasn't until September. So they were way into it and they were planning rallies. There was, and this is where I could get in trouble, but I don't care. Okay. There were very disorganized plans changed daily. Um, it, it was frustrating to say the least. So I just tried to focus on my job, which was trying to gather volunteers and coordinate our Washington state effort. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like I said, the, the inner workings, the decisions I had no say in, I do absolutely agree with the assessment that, um, the campaign manager, uh, Ron Nielsen, was paid a lot of money, but that was paid to his firm. And there was, you know, they say, well, you know, he was maybe covering other costs or paying other people. And I've never looked into those records. And so he never received that money directly. It was all through his firm. Right. Well, that's what I wondered, too, if, if possibly Nielsen was paying people. Like they're, they're, Judd was accusing them of flying delegates in and paying for hotel rooms. If Nielsen had been paying for all that through his firm, it makes a lot more sense to see, okay, 1.8 million because he's expending all this money funneling it through to pay for these other people or to pay to, to have people leave the McAfee campaign and whatnot. So yeah, it makes sense in that context that I doubt he was just paid flat out 1.8 million and he just pocketed all of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, and there was a lot of expenditures, whether it was one of the things that happened is at every single rally, they were actually making all of the signage and the banners in each city before the event, as opposed to traveling around with them. Mm. And some of those banners were, you know, 600 bucks, especially when they need to be ordered like three days out. Right. Yeah, exactly. So again, that goes back to your point about the planning, not being quite there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things that, and the, the, I think that there was a lot of inexperience in the staff, and that is just my own personal opinion. Mm-hmm. Is that something as a larger – see, that's my problem, I think, overall. It's it's funny because the Libertarian Party – and you said you're not – you're no longer a member of either the Washington or the National Party. And I myself have, have uh, flirted with the idea of getting involved with the Libertarian Party, especially with my – you know, having PR background. It drives me insane when I see all the dumb things the Libertarian Party does. Like, you know, they just recently posted a Satanist post on the homepage of the Libertarian Party on Facebook, which got them in some trouble with people. But it's it's looking at that – and it's not, you know, it's like, it seems like it's always that way where there's never, the party can't seem to get out of its own way 90% of the time. And it, I don't know if having a different candidate in place would change that, who has a better political machine. But I mean, if, if you say, okay, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld couldn't do it, two governors, that was that we were sold on, two governors can't seem to get it to work with all their political experience. Is it because of them? And I do put a lot of blame on them, but is it because of them or is it because the Libertarian Party and the people within the party are always so independent minded that it's hard to get them to work together in an efficient manner? Well, one thing, excuse me, one of the things that I kept shouting from the mountaintop during the campaign is that Johnson Weld ran their campaign independent from the Libertarian Party. Mm. They did get support from the LP, but they were not working with them. The The Libertarian Party was not running that campaign. So I do not think that the Libertarian Party can get blame for how Johnson Well did. I do think they can get some blame on maybe the volunteers not 
getting involved and doing enough. Um, I know here in Washington, when we were trying to, we only needed to get a thousand signatures to get them on the ballot. And there was a handful, you know, maybe five people in the state who organized the the different signature gatherings to do it. it we just could not get people mobilized yeah. to actually do it. Yeah. Um, as far as my personal opinion on, I mean, at one point, Johnson Weld were polling very well. Uh, they were getting all kinds of media coverage. They were getting on all the cable news channels. And I personally believe that the problem was Gary doing silly things like sticking his tongue out or (laughs) he would act like a complete and total goof. Whereas as much as I disagree with Weld, I do think that Weld carried himself very professionally. Um, He, you know, he has authority. He's credible. Um, And even if he people say he's not a libertarian, um, at least I think he was a good representative uh, politically, whereas I think Gary just shot himself in the foot because he wasn't prepared and he didn't seem to be taking it seriously. You know, I had I had a, a very similar reaction in a lot of ways. And, and Bill Weld, I I will not lie. I really despised him by the end of the campaign uh, because I feel like he just continuously was was undermining the the libertarian platform. But when he did at various random times hit upon a libertarian uh, moment where he, I mean, he would actually express it far with actually far more clarity and in a far more understandable and politically, I'd say alignable fashion than Gary Johnson could. And yes, that's I what, completely agree. Yeah. Right. And it just drove you nuts. Cause you look at Gary and you go, God, how did, how did this guy and not and twice now? And I, and granted, I know you, I know you put your support behind him, so I don't want to come down too hard on him on the show, but uh, but I wonder, he, he, I mean, two times he got the presidential nomination and I just, I go, how, how is it possible? Cause what, am, what am I not seeing that he is bringing to the table other than the fact that he was a governor? Cause he seems, like you said, like a total goofball, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, he doesn't carry himself like a president and half of it. Now, granted, you could argue neither does Trump, but I mean, Trump's bravado and bluster and I'm going to get it done. You know, people are dumb animals. So mm-hmm. when you get somebody like that out there. You could at least understand why somebody supported him, whereas Gary just you got no confidence when you watch him you know, out there speaking. And, and you say, God, if something came out, if something happened and, and he had to make a snap decision, are we really going to trust this guy? And I think a lot of that came came around to that when in the mind of the public. Yeah. And having been a delegate and I and we interviewed all of the, the candidates. Yes, I did vote for him at convention. I did not vote for Weld, though. I voted for Sharp. Mm-hmm. The The reason I chose to support him, but you can bash him all you want, because it was almost like picking the the lesser of all the evils, not that none of any of the other candidates are evil. <laughs> but when you look at experience like Austin Peterson, I adore brash jerk Austin Peterson when he was just doing his commentary and just Mm -hmm. doing his website. When he became the politician, it was almost like he became a different person. And I did not buy that he was serious at all. I thought it was for publicity. And Mm -hmm. I've told him that to his face. So that's okay. Um, You know, Daryl Perry, again, I like him as a person. That's my disclaimer. I have to say that. Um, (laughs) But his his views are radical. I mean, he says things that shock me and I'm pretty much ANCAP at this point. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's no way there's just zero. I mean, I agree. I I uh, I have no problem with Daryl Perry. He's a very nice guy. But I agree. He was there's he had the most outside chance of anybody, I think, by far. Because yeah, yeah, you just can't. And, he, he'd be a, he'd make a headline every single day, and not for the dumb reasons Gary Johnson did, but for the reasons where he would just say something like you're saying, where you just go, "Jesus, man, come on, you can't yeah, say that you, in public and expect people to just take it at face value." Right. You cannot say age of consent should be when you go through puberty. You just right. can't. Right. It, it especially the the women of America are going to string them up. You know. Yeah. <laughs> And you have to be pragmatic, whatever, you know, even as the most purest person, if you actually want to get someone elected, you have to practice some sort of pragmatism um, or you have to pick a candidate who is well-spoken and is delivering a message that is for outreach only. You know, and I would I would love to see someone like Will Coley run and because he's on fire, Mm. he's uh 
you know, he's a Muslim. He's also a self-defined uh, redneck. And I think he could <laughs> get get a message out there and maybe make people aware of the message, but he's never going to get elected. So I think we have to decide, because at this point, I don't think we have a pool of people unless somebody's wet dream comes true and, you know, Rand switches or, yeah, you know, yeah. it which is, isn't going to happen. No, I mean, hey, if it was going to happen, it should have happened this year. I think he might have had a shot, but mm-hmm. tragically not. Yeah, I agree with you there, though. It's it, And that's, I'll be honest, that's why I gravitated towards McAfee over the other candidates in this past cycle was because I felt that he almost naturally had this inclination where he could speak very well about libertarian principles and not even quoting Rothbard. You know, he just happened to have this worldview and he was able to articulate it very well. At least until the last libertarian debate where I felt he, I don't know. I don't know if he had stage fright or what, but he just fell short. But, yeah. uh, oh, God. Oh, I was just going to say the the reason, you know, because I looked into McVie as well and we did interview him, mm-hmm. although that was our our shortest, most interesting interview that we had. <laughs> when we called him, he'd actually forgot that he had an interview and and we woke him up. And then his <laughs> woke his him up phone. on the toilet, probably where he had passed out in a, some sort of stupor. <laughs> although I think he's sober. He's sober now. Yeah. And so, well, I think he does drink, I believe he was drinking at convention, but that I did not think that he could be taken seriously, you know, because of the allegations against him. And if you go on to YouTube and you start watching like all the Dateline and, you know, interviews where he's talking about bringing his underage girlfriends up and the allegations that he killed his neighbor. Right. There's as, as well. And and when you speak to him face to face, he is charming and charismatic. And, you know, you just like are, are, are kind of floored by his manliness. Yeah. yeah. But I, I did not, America would not have taken him seriously with his past. Well, see, it's an interesting debate though. That's getting back to what you're saying is, is it, would I agree he would not have been elected. Um, and, and I do agree that the most electable people the Libertarian Party could put forth probably were Gary Johnson and Bill Weld. Uh, what does that say about what, who we're putting out there? But um, but I, I you know it's like the message like it, what what should the goal be? Is it, you know, concentrate on the message or concentrate on the messenger at this point? And one of the issues I have a lot of the times with Libertarian Party and the Libertarian politics in general is that. And I'll, I'll harken back to this Judd Weiss interview that Mark did. Uh, Judd said that he's done with the Libertarian Party because he called it, I believe, a kennel <laughs> of rabid dogs, <laughs> I think is his exact phrase. Uh, scratching itself to death. Right. I think yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I, but I agree with that in a large way because you look at everything that's going like, I mean, we can't do interviews. You're, you know, you guys have a podcast. We have a podcast. You cannot go out there and say anything without people actively looking to rip you down and challenge your libertarian street cred and say, oh, this and that. And I can't believe you don't, you think this. It's like, there is so much infighting and it's true. It's just, people are scratching at, you know, or scratching at the libertarian skin and just, and tearing it off. So our enemies don't have to do anything else. They can just sit back and watch yourself implode every single time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's why I decided not to continue as a paid member, which is great. Like, I'm still a volunteer director for a candidate here who's running for city council. It's a nonpartisan, mm-hmm. but, you know, he's a former libertarian candidate. I'm helping with another candidate running um, for city council just, you know, on the side. I still have you like give him liber- a plug in case the people are listening. Yes, uh, check out Paul Addis, who's running for Kent City uh, Council. Uh, he's actually been on the Johnny Rocket Launchpad a few times, uh, better known as St. Addis. He's oh. one of the best people I know. So definitely, if you're in Kent, Washington, you should vote for Paul Addis. And then the, also- actually, I think, was that the one that you called me out on? Was he on that program? Well, I'm not sure. I don't remember. <laughs> Never Did mind. I call you? Okay. <laughs> Never mind. God, yeah. <laughs> um, and then there's also James Passy who's running for city council in Seattle, um, which is we have a socialist city council member. So it's going to be an uphill battle. But I believe in him. Hmm. I'm still having like all the Liberty social events. I, I do the the Ladies of Liberty Alliance, which is nonpartisan, small uh, libertarian. So I'm still doing everything I used to do. I'm just not paying to be a part of a club where. I'm told that I need to be quiet when I point things out. Right. Yeah. 
Well, here's a question to wrap this whole Gary Johnson segment up. And it's a very simple question. Might have a complex answer. Do you regret working for the campaign? No, because I needed a job. (laughs) Good answer. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's it. That's it. I I don't regret it. It was fun. It was a good experience. Um, I learned a lot about politics. It changed my views on a lot of things. And I'm really glad I did it. Cool. And now learning what you did about politics, would you ever consider being a candidate for any sort of position? You know, like, would you consider running for office in any way, shape or form, be it for libertarian or uh, locally? Um, maybe in the future, um, when I get a little bit older, uh, I think that women sort of gain a power when they get a little bit older, kind of like Mother Jones or Margaret Thatcher. Not mm. that I believe in their politics. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've I've thought about it, and I definitely wouldn't rule it out. All right, cool. Well, good to know. Good to know. All right, tell you what. I'm going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, guys, we're going to play a little bit of Trump or Dump and get into some Jeff Sessions stuff uh, and a little bit extra. So I'll be right back with Heather Nixon. Hey guys, this is Roger Paxton, and if you're fed up with the government running every single aspect of your life, but you're not listening to the Lava Flow podcast yet, then what's wrong with you? Check us out at thelavaflow.com, or just go back to sucking up to the government. The Lava Flow podcast, striking the root every single episode. This is Chris Spangle, and I am the host of We Are Libertarians, which you can find in iTunes, Google Play, or at wearelibertarians.com. We are a podcast that brings you all of the irreverence that modern politics deserves by examining current events from a libertarian perspective. So please, check us out at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, the Johnny Rocket Launchpad is Liberty. Each week we strive to bring you the best guests in talk radio. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad delivers weekly interviews of noteworthy politicians, experts, and activists. The Johnny Rocket Launchpad is bringing the party to the Libertarian Party and launching ideas in your direction. Check us out at johnnyrocketlaunchpad.com and you can hear me, Kurt Nelson, and the beautiful Heather Nixon talk about the ideas of liberty. Rock and roll. All right, we are back. We're going to do a little uh, Trump or dump. I am here with Heather Nixon of the Johnny Rocket Launchpad. And what I want to talk about here, Heather, is that Donald Trump has obviously, he made a big promise, as did the entire GOP, to repeal Obamacare and uh, ostensibly replace it as well. Now, the Freedom Caucus struck down Ryan Care. Which, by the way, what did you get a chance to look into Ryan Care? What were your What were your thoughts on the Ryan Care replacement bill for Obamacare and the Freedom Caucus's assessment that it was Obamacare light and their subsequent uh, rebellion against it? Um, I'm going to be honest. I did not go in and read any fine print. Um, I only saw like the headlines and that read very. So I'm actually don't know a lot about the details. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but I definitely going to take ran's word for it that it was not gonna do what trump had promised and well that's what was crazy it was like i mean i i, I went in there and, yeah, and i didn't read every page of it either but just the broad strokes of it were insane because it was it was essentially keeping all of the stuff like this like well we wanted to keep the things that people liked and like well if you keep the things that people liked it's the same you know terrible bill <laughs> that's costing everybody tons of money all the time because it kept up everybody on the rolls for pre-existing conditions but it also got rid of the individual mandate. So essentially what would happen is that you got everybody still on that has the pre-existing conditions, but there's no way to actually pay for it. Like the premiums have skyrocketed with the mandate, which is supposed to cover these people. So they took that out and it's just none of it. it, it none of it made any sense. <laughs> Long story short, none of it made sense. You still couldn't get insurance across state lines. It was Obama. It was just horrible. It was a horrible. So, commercial. Um. The 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 article you linked me so I could do yeah. homework. It talked about um, how the federal the feds have already uh, defunded uh, paying the extra supplements that that cover the low income. So my question is, does that mean that those bills would then go to the patients, or are they going to uh, make everybody re- redo the forms and maybe they they would get premiums because if you're under a certain income, you're not going to pay. So who's going to pay it? That's a good question. Well, see, the thing is, when I my understanding from reading this was that they had defunded it, but then they're saying that even though it was defunded, it got appealed. So they're still the government's still making the payments during the appeal. 
which is mm-hmm. like a three or however many years appeal. So I guess right now the government's still paying out. And what this is, 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 um, to give a little bit of ba- more background on this is der- the part of the Obamacare bill. One more thing that the public, I don't know if they don't know about it. I'm guessing they didn't. Cause again, I think most of the public figure this is universal healthcare anyway, cause they're idiots, but the insurance companies get a payout that basically assured them. They say, okay, well, we're going to make sure you don't lose money over Obamacare. So in addition to all of us paying massive premium hikes, additionally, they're getting money from the government to cover their, their, you know, whatever losses they're claiming to. Mm-hmm. So both on both sides of the spectrum, we're getting screwed. Our cost of, of healthcare went up and our taxes are also going to insurance companies. So that's like what basically, so the story I sent to Heather earlier is from uh, the Washington Times. And again, I'll link to this in our show notes, which you can find at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL 16. And so Obama now, or I'm sorry, not Obama, Trump now is threatening to cut off these payments, which as Heather pointed out, are already supposed to be cut off anyway. But Trump's now saying, look, I'm going to cut these insurance payments off. So that way the insurers will say, you know what? Then forget it. Forget the whole thing. They'll flip the table over and, and that'll be that. And it will essentially bring Obamacare down to its knees. So with that in mind, Heather, Trump or dump on this move? Are you for, uh, the strong arm tactics? Now, granted, it'll probably never happen, but what do you think of Trump's move here? Uh, I definitely think it's a dump. And I mean, Trump is so wishy-washy and changes his stance every couple days. And so I think that's why I've sort of turned tuned out mm-hmm. what he even says about anything, because nothing seems to ever happen anyway. So no, definitely a dump. Well, he, uh, he, he I, it's interesting because I am going to give it a Trump. <laughs> but, uh, oh, God, I almost knocked my microphone off there. <laughs> I gestured. All excited. Even though I'm alone, I still gestured wildly. I pointed my finger up in the air. When I brought my finger down, I almost knocked the mic off the desk. All right. <laughs> Just a little insight into my life. Uh, but no, it, it's true. Trump is so much bluster. And I guess it's from, yeah, I've not read The Art of the Deal. <laughs> Full disclosure. I never will. But uh, supposedly that's like his tactic is that he promises a big thing or he or he throws out something really big there just so he can reel it back in. And, um, so, you know, for me, I give this a Trump, not necessarily because I say, okay, well, this is going to really move them to act, although it could, I mean, uh, it, it really could, but I like it as a Trump because I just like the fact that he's drawing attention to the fact that there is the massive amount of chromity capitalism at play here where the, where, I mean, I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure people don't know that the insurance companies are getting paid out by the government on the dole on the back end. Meanwhile, we're getting completely held up at gunpoint on the front end. So well, for that, I, I mean, I, I'm glad for awareness building, I guess. Okay. And I would like to point out there's also, and I have not looked into it, but I used to work for the welfare office here in Washington state. And I started right when Obamacare uh, was implemented. And so all of the states had to set up the healthcare exchanges mm-hmm. And the money that the states had to pay, uh, not just to set up the the website, so hire additional staff, um, it, it was an. Inc- I mean, and of course they put that in a different budget, where the, it's state, and then of course they get reimbursed from the feds. There's so much money tied into this, and so much complication, and the and the websites crashing, and people couldn't get on. Yeah, the whole thing. They should just get out of it. Yeah, damn well right. And it's like, and I was just reading something else. I think it was Arkansas or Alabama where there's no healthcare exchanges anywhere. Like they've all crashed. So I don't even, I don't know what those people are doing. I guess they're just, you know, hooking for, for Medicaid on the street or something, but, uh, terrible situation. Yes. <laughs> um, okay. So that's our Trump or dump. Uh, let's move on now to Mr. Jeff Sessions. So yes. <laughs> Jeffy Sessions is uh, not our favorite guy. I think we were probably both simpatico there. But a story just came out where Attorney General Jeff Sessions on Tuesday, uh, last Tuesday, said he's surprised, quote, unquote, surprised Americans aren't embracing his widely reported stance against medical marijuana. So <laughs> what do you think about Jeff Sessions? And this, it, really what I want to talk about here is like, 
just when are people going to wake up and get like I these older generation just doesn't seem to want to accept the basic facts of the matter. So like, what are you what are your thoughts on this? Like, what is this finally going to going to push the guy over the edge and be like his wake up call? I don't think he's ever going to wake up. No, I think he's so entrenched in his belief um, that he wants to get the war on drugs back going, um, because when he was, uh, you know, a prosecutor, what state? Remind me what state he's from, because I'm blanking. Leah, uh, do you expect me to know? I don't even know how to yes. pronounce these people's names most of the time. <laughs> okay. So he was like, you know, during the whole crackdown and and the crack and mass incarcerations, and he believes that mass incarcerations are going to fix everything. We just need to lock everybody up. Right. So because good I, people I, don't smoke marijuana, according to Jim. Correct. Correct. Um, he doesn't believe that there's any validity to medical marijuana use. Um, he just refuses to even accept that, you know, to to look into it at all. So he's not going to change his mind. And and I'm I cannot believe that he's even in the position he is. He's in direct conflict with the Homeland Security Director, John F. Kelly, who, you know, he's like medical marijuana is good if it works. And right, yeah. he doesn't think marijuana is a problem. So Jeff Session is just out of touch. Yeah. Well, you know, and the thing is, too, I bet if you ask Jeff Sessions said, Jeff, do you care about our military veterans? Do you care about the people that are volunteering and, well, not volunteering, but are giving their lives for our country? And you know what? I'm sure he would say, oh my God, yes, they're the most important people. They're, uh, they're heroes to us all. And then you turn around and you see how many Americans support legalization of marijuana, legalization of medical marijuana, and then all of the studies coming back for veterans who have PTSD. Uh, you know, like I was talking to these guys from MAPS, which is the study of psychedelics and how, how ecstasy or not ecstasy, MDMA can affect these veterans. So it's like, if you give a damn about our troops, you should be all for ending the war on drugs. Because you can save more lives that way than you're going to do anything else. I mean, look, if you're not going to stop the military industrial complex, and you're not going to stop fighting wars everywhere else. At least make it so these guys can have some peace at home and smoke a doobie when they get back. Right. Yeah, absolutely. But instead, he's created a task force on crime reduction and public safety. Right. Um, and they're going to have a report coming out in July. Um, and he thinks that that this is like he said that. If he implements a war on drugs, if he locks up people, um, he doesn't believe in the states having uh, the the power. I'm not going to say rights um, <laughs> to to implement uh, their own laws. You know, he said, I don't think that he's in touch with reality at all. And right. he's going to, you right. know, the 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 war on drugs that and then that's just going to perpetuate the breaking up of the families and 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 all that kind of thing by incarcerating people it's and like you said if you care about the, our military guys who you know if they say yes this is helping me and I'm not going postal then right. we should be all for it damn well right yeah and it's and here to your point about him being completely out of touch let me read this quote this is from uh, richmond virginia last month and it's in this washington times piece i'm reading because it is a ridiculous quote okay uh i don't have a jeff sessions impression but i'll just do an old man voice i realize this may be an unfashionable belief in a time of growing tolerance of drug use but too many lives are at stake to worry about being fashionable I reject the idea that America will be a better place if marijuana is sold in every corner store, said Mr. Sessions during an address in Virginia. I think medical marijuana has been hyped maybe too much. It's only slightly less awful than heroin. So only slightly less awful than heroin. Medical marijuana. <laughs> medical marijuana. Only slightly less awful than heroin. <laughs> My God. Oh, this guy. This guy. Yeah, I, I don't understand how he. I, I, God, but God knows, you know, they drive Flynn out. That shows you. That shows you what Democrats give a give. A, I don't want to curse. I'm trying not to curse on my show. <laughs> it gives you what Democrats to give a, a damn about. It's not this kind of stuff. It's just what they should care about. Like if there's something they should be pushing out, it's not Flynn who did like nothing wrong. I mean, it was, you know, it's not Flynn. It's not uh, whoever else they pushed out. Bannon. It's this guy. Get this clown out of there. Connect him with some Russian propaganda. Somebody. Yeah. And like I said, it gets in direct conflict uh, with 
the Homeland Security Secretary John F. Kelly, who said, whether it's veterans or anyone else, if it helps those people, then fine. Medicine is medicine. Right. Yep, exactly. It, so we have these conflicting me- uh, messages coming from, uh, you know, the crown. So what are people supposed to think? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been that way for, I mean, God, decades now is the, the government propaganda coming out. I mean, and the fact that it's taxpayer money too, the shoving all this government propaganda down our throats. I mean, even the old truth campaign of this is your brain on drugs I saw was making a resurgence. So mm-hmm. yeah, they need to knock it off. I mean, it's just, it's our money paying for lies at this point. And, uh, and you got Jeff Sessions out there just propagating the lie more and more and more. Yes, absolutely. All right. So let's move on now. I want to look, I want to look towards France. Uh, I don't often do it, but. The situation here, and it's 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 odd. This is going to be a little roundabout kind of kind of take, but I've been observing it because it, it fascinates me. So during the election, Hillary Clinton obviously lost, and all of the people, and it was cracking me up because all these people said, "Oh God, we got to, you know, we we should have a just a straight democratic election because she'd won the popular vote, and uh, and you know, oh, we electoral college is the worst. Get rid of it, you know, because they were all pissed off Hillary lost. But then you look to France. And for our listeners that don't know, France has an actual straight up democratic system. Like there's no electoral college. It's just whoever gets the most votes wins. And they are crapping their frog pants because uh, Marine Le Pen, who is you know our white right winger, had been leading the polls. So everybody in France now is <laughs> reading all these articles is saying we need to get a, an electoral college system in here. We can't be trusted, you know. <laughs> and now. Now, even uh, even stranger. So Marine Le Pen had been leading. And now this other guy. Uh, hold on. Let me bring his name up here. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, I believe is how you say that, uh, is a leftist slash socialist who is now skyrocketing up in the polls, I guess, in response to Marine Le Pen uh, going up in the polls. So, I mean, I don't know if you're paying any attention to this at all, Heather, but I are you fascinated at what's happening in France and just these undulating waves of politics that are crashing among the shore of people that are, uh, that have taken refuge there? I'm not going to lie. I was not fascinated until you told me it was going to be a topic, um, today (laughs) as we recorded. Um, but I, it was actually, I was delving deep because first off I was trying to understand how the French political system works and it's, it's all kinds of layers and they have the, like you said, the democratic elected uh, president, and then he appoints a prime minister, but then there's like all the, the, the other ministers that are appointed, but Mm -hmm. then they have the cabinets that are actually elected. So it was, I was trying to understand that first of all, so I could stand like, uh, sound like I was smart and, but that was not on my podcast for that. So don't worry. No, no, that wasn't on my GED test. (laughs) But there's also so the two front runners you said Le Pen and then there's Macron. Yeah. Um, am I saying that correct, Macron? I, I, I believe. Um, you know, I don't know how to pronounce anything, so sure. <laughs> it it kind of seems like so Le Pen, who is uh, the right winger, and then Macron, who is the social social liberty from the En Marche party. Mm-hmm. It's almost like they. It's, it seems very similar to a Clinton-Trump race, and then there's this third party, although there's 11 candidates running. There's this third party guy from the um, unsubmissive France party, the mm. Mélenchon. Mélenchon, who all, yeah. He's almost like people are saying, uh, fight the power, we're going to vote for this other guy. He's like a, Tr- uh, he's like a, a Trumpian Bernie Sanders, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I would almost say maybe, you know, well, yeah, Bernie Sanders politically, but he's like the the third party Gary Johnson where he's coming in and can he be a spoiler? Right. And because people are just sick of, of the top two who think they have all the power. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, I, I mean, and this is what I was talking to a little bit when we were chatting before the show. But what I find so in- interesting about this as well is that France has gone through a ton of turmoil. I mean, France had for a while there, they were having, and this is under leftist policies and, you know, they, they have, you know, these crazy, uh, crazy provisions for people taking family leave and maternity leave and paid holidays and paid time off and overtime. And, uh, and they like, they had all these laws, socialist laws in the books 
for the worker, to protect the worker. And yet at the same time, they had crazy unemployment. They had all of these immigrants that were coming in. I, and I'm blanking on where they're from. Um, maybe Algerians, but they had all these immigrants that were also not able to find jobs because it's hard to get a job because people, because you had the minimum wage and they're striking in the streets and like violently rioting. And then you see that, you know, despite all of this happening, you still have this Trotskyite uh, rising up and, and surging in the polls. And it's like, do, do people never learn? Do they not see the things that have failed, the failed policies in France that have made living there for many of these people, uh, you know, a nightmare? And yet they're still like, well, we must double down. Clearly, we're not doing it well enough. Well, no, I think that people heard that that Mélenchon guy, who is the far left candidate, mm -hmm. he wants to reduce the work week to like 32 hours. So right. they're like, hell yeah, we'll <laughs> go is, for that. Yeah. How's that going to do for unemployment, by the way? I'm <laughs> sure that's going to work out for, for a country that already has high unemployment. Yeah. Let's shorten the work week. Good luck. Good luck, guys. <laughs> yeah. Because they have like, what is it? Like 10% unemployment and then like among young people, it's 20 something yeah. percent. Yep. It's exactly. crazy. That was, well, that's who was writing. It was immigrants and uh, yeah. And the younger people. Uh, who are, of course, privileged on uh, in general uh, coming out. But, yeah, they, they can't get jobs. And it was interesting. Uh, again, I'm giving Mark way too many uh, way too much credit. But he was speaking with uh, Sam Cedar, who is a, a like a left wing podcaster, journalist and also the voice of uh, if you watch Bob's Burgers, he's like the voice of this health inspector. <laughs> and, uh, it's like a really nerdy health inspector named Hugo. And honestly, listening to the interview, you make it's hard for me to take him seriously because I hate the character so much that I could picture as him as a character. But anyway, but Sam Cedar was saying, oh, you know, his problem with libertarianism was that we operate on on this basis of believing in theories. He said it was like a religion. He's like, because, you know, you guys believe in theories with no data to back it up. And I'm thinking we have hundred years of data to back our side up, but nobody wants to actually give it a shot. Meanwhile, progressive left has a hundred years of failed policies that they keep double downing on again and again and again. You know, like the welfare state keeps getting bigger. Nothing's getting better. The poverty rate stays the same. And it reminds me of that in France. You know, it's like the, we've got more, we have more data backing up our point of view that something needs to be done differently than anybody else does. And yet we can't get a seat at the table. Yes. This is correct. And, you know, I and as I was looking, they have so many political parties in France and, you know, much like Canada or England. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure how equally they're represent represented um, as far as their election elected officials. Mm -hmm. um, but that would be interesting to know. Um, now, do you know if now Le Pen, one of the things that they want to talk about is if France is liable for when the Jews were rounded up during World War II, because that seems to be what she's having to defend herself against. Yeah. Do you I, know anything? I do. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I don't have the exact quote, but she had basically, yeah, she had said that France is not responsible for the rounding up of Jews. But people were saying, I think, that she was denying that it happened, which oh. or denying that France had or that French, you know, the French people had anything to do with it, I believe is what they were saying. And if so, that's probably not true. They were just being coerced in it. It's, you know, as John Paul Sartre like to say, bad faith because you have a choice. Whether or not there's a gun to your head, you still have a choice to whether or not to push someone else into a gas chamber. But, um, yeah, I believe that's what she was saying. So she wasn't denying that it happened. It wasn't like a Holocaust denial type of thing. But she was saying that France was was not complicit, as people like to make out, or that they, yeah, they shouldn't be held accountable uh, for those actions. Yeah, what I saw was she said it was the people in power, not the people of France. So, and right. that might have been a clarification on remarks. Right. But when people are so caught up on something like that because they want to be outraged about something that is poli politically incorrect mm -hmm. instead of focused on, like you said, economic issues about what's going on in the actual country, that may be the problem. Yeah. Where they're they're more worried about shorter work weeks and if somebody might have said something that hurt someone's feelings. Right. Yeah, exactly right. And I'm sure they're, they, they can read the headline about a shorter work week and celebrate yet. They're, they're not going to pick up their, uh, you know, their, their economics documents and, uh, and dig out their old books from, from the collegiate courses anytime soon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think Heather, I think that's going to do it. Anything else you want to talk about? Why I got you here? 
Um, no, just like I said, uh, you please subscribe to the Johnny Rocket Um, check out my YouTube channel, Heather Nixon, a woman place know it. I make fun of third wave feminists. And if you're interested in Ladies of Liberty Alliance, go to Lola.org. There you go. All right. Thank you so much, Heather. And you know, while I'm at it, I'm going to plug some stuff. Guys, make sure to follow us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And hey, if you got some fingers, why don't you give us a nice review? Makes me feel good about myself. Keeps me going. What do you think? I get up in the morning feeling great? Feel like garbage every day. Give me a review. Make me feel good. And uh, of course, you can support us on Podbean through our uh, patron uh, Podbean program, Lions of Liberty dot com forward slash support and hey buy a t-shirt lions of liberty dot store all right from me from heather nixon at the johnny rocket podcast and from electric liberty land always stay plugged in to liberty